Hello and welcome to the Emotional Web Podcast, where we take a deep dive into the human condition, having conversations that you wouldn't necessarily expect. Um, now, our guest today is uh, someone whose surname spikes up a lot of discussion and debates within the kind of learning and development, organizational development and HR sector. Um, it's uh, he's someone I've known for a number of years. We first met back in, I think it was 2012. So we've we've worked together for a number of years and, um, and I, I feel very honored to be one of the few people in the world that are a, a certified Kirkpatrick Evaluation Program Facilitator. There's not very many people in the world that can claim that title. Um, and Jim Kirkpatrick, who is our guest today, um, is somebody who is still you know, spearheading and leading the, the world and the thinking on where evaluation goes. Now, I know for some listeners, you'll think, really? Leading the world on evaluation? I don't buy that. Um, and that's part of what I wanted to discuss with uh, with Jim today. So enough um, preamble from me. Let's get our guest on the air. So let's welcome to the Emotion at Work podcast, Mr. Jim Kirkpatrick. Hi, Jim. Hi, Phil. Good to talk to you again. Good to talk to you too. So we, uh, as per, the, uh, per this podcast, we always open with a um, an innocuous yet unexpected question um, because I think it gives us a much nicer way of getting to know the guest than uh, and just kind of doing a tell us a bit more about who you are and where you come from. So um, the guest, the guest, the question that I have today comes from Monica Parker. So when I asked, um, I asked Twitter for some inspiration for some um, unexpected yet innocuous questions. And her suggested question was, what special meal would you make for somebody to make them feel special or honored? You don't think I was expecting that question? No, I don't think you're expecting that question. <laughs> I surely wasn't. Well, just before I answer, one of the problems is for me to make a meal at all. We're going to assume that I can make a meal. Okay, so well, let's, let's just get that out of the way. What I would do to make them feel special is to probably uh, catch some trout or in in a river or bass in a lake uh, and then... Uh, Maybe have them help help catch it, and then and then cook it over a over an open fire with some cut potatoes and some uh, green beans or something. Uh, uh, that would be uh, taking some uh, you know an experience and turning it into a meal and showing them that they're special. So that's probably what I would do. Oh, that sounds lovely. That sounds really nice. Mine just kind of pales into insignificance now. I feel very inadequate with what. Anyway, but anyway, we'll go with what I was going to say. <laughs> so I, I'm a big fan of slow cooking. Um, I, I like I like slow cooked curry, slow cooked chilies, um, uh, and things and things like that. And and for me, it's a it's a, the the putting that slow cooked um, dish and whatever it is in the middle of the table with a with a ladle inside and everybody just diving in. Um, and there's there's you know, depending on what the meal is, there's either glasses of wine or there's glasses of beer or there's there's uh, glasses of water or whatever that might be. But it's that kind of it's the big pot in the middle of the table and everybody being around it and diving in and helping themselves. And, um, you know, and, and it being that very big communal kind of bringing everybody together thing. And I like I like that about a slow cook meal where you just put a big pot of stuff in the middle and then everybody just dives in and helps themselves. You know, Phil, it's interesting you say that because we're both, you and I have similar personalities. We're about connecting with people and the human experience. And both our examples were about not not the food so much, but the experience bringing people together in, in some special way. And that's uh, not surprised to hear you say that. And I would dive into that into that bowl with everybody else. It would be a, a lot of fun. It would be a lot of fun. And am I, am I right in thinking you, you live near water, don't you? So is fishing a regular occurrence for you? Yes. Yes, we could go right out in my backyard and catch some fish. And uh, maybe we, instead of diving into your bowl, they could dive into the lake and get, get refreshed before before dinner. Oh, see, now that, that would appeal to my, my swimming <laughs> antics that I'm up to. Oh. I can go for a swim, then catch my dinner, and then uh, cook it over an open fire. That sounds lovely. There you go. Yeah. Excellent. So I, I'm, I'm going to take that segue that you gave me just now in terms of the, the bringing people together and, and, and making a connection bit. Um, because when I came up with the title for this podcast about emotion at work in evaluation, um, one, of the, one of the perennial challenges, I think, that uh, irrespective of whether, you know, whatever model or approach somebody might be using for evaluation, trying to evaluate something like that, bringing people together. 
you know, and, and bringing, you know, encouraging that human connection and those sorts of things. I think that that more behavioral or, or soft stuff, I think, can be harder for people to get their heads around about how they evaluate. And is that a challenge that you that you hear regularly? Oh, it, it is, Phil. And and a lot of people would say, Phil, what are you even talking about? What does bringing people together possibly have to do with evaluation? Evaluation is very simple. You give people a smile sheet at the end of the class and you test them to see if they understand what you've told them. Mm-hmm. And then maybe 90 days later, you send a survey out, find out if they're actually doing what they're supposed to do. What is this bringing together? And so really, you, you, you know from, from your work as well that Mm. Evaluation should be about getting information, not just collecting data to throw into some file somewhere. And in order to collect the richness of information, certainly we, we use testing and surveys and things like that. But in order to get a deeper understanding of what's going on both in the classroom and in the field, you flat out just need to talk to people and you need to observe people and talk to their leaders and get the the, the deeper story, the additional story, because that way we try and get as much of the truth as we can using technology, using the different sources, using the human factor, because that allows us to get as much information as we can, both in the classroom and the field, in order to make improvements. But, Phil, we're, we're lone wolves out there sometimes because the technology is basically telling us you don't need the human factor. All you need is automation to get as much information as you need to make improvements, and it's just not true. And a lot of people uh, uh, are, are buying into that myth that you don't need the human factor. Yeah, so I, I, and I agree, I agree with you in that the, the human factor aspects will always be present, you know, whether it be, um, even if it might be mediated by technology, you know, so you and I are talking over a, um, you know, the equivalent of a Skype call today, um, and as the regular podcast listeners will know, I, I make I deliberately turn the video off when I do podcast recordings because I want it to be an all you know a, a, an accurate representation of the conversation that we had. But either way, you and I are are affecting each other through the discourse and the interaction that we have. So even if that human connection is mediated over technology, it's still there. And I think you, you're right in the. Um, you know all the challenges with the automation brings um you know which way will it go you know is it about automation will free up times for more human connection or or is that actually automation will reduce human connection because people won't interact with each other um as much is a yeah like you said a fascinating debate you know phil one other thing about that is that uh the whole purpose of evaluation is to get that information in order to make improvements, as I said, both in the classroom and in the field, in order to contribute to the mission. You know, that's that's what it's all about, not just checking a box that someone's gone through training. And the other aspect of the human connection is it is required after training to, to maintain that human connection with supervisors and peers and colleagues in order to encourage and inspire each other and to compel each other to actually apply what they learned. Because if, if they don't apply it, you try and demonstrate value, there will be very little value. So the human connection, again, follows through uh, the actual learning and performance uh, uh, journey, as opposed to just uh, stopping at the, the human stops at training, and then people are just kind of left to fend for themselves. Yeah, absolutely. And and I, I do sort of see and hear a, a much wider discussion about some of the um, yeah, and there's different, there's different similar titles. That, or sorry, there's different titles that talk about similar things. So some people talk about systems thinking or systems mapping. Um, other people talk about the different factors, the human factors, and other factors that that are involved. But and uh, and there's also the I can't remember the lady's surname and somebody with the action mapping work that she does. Um, all of which are, are, are kind of variations on the theme of the fact that learning doesn't happen in isolation. Yes, you can. Yes, you could. Um, you could make some resources available for people. You could um, put them through a formal development program. You could give people a load of job aids or, or you know, or performance support resources or whatever that is. But that all of those things happen within a wider context, within a wider system. And I, I think one of the big challenges that sits with evaluation is that 
when you build the when you build an approach to evaluation, you often it's done without wider consideration of that system and where you can source um, data and information from to help you with that that monitoring to see if the um, if learning interventions are actually making a difference and having an impact. Yeah, Phil, you're you're all over that, and all those examples that you used are about systems and whether it's holistic medicine or you know, family uh, therapy, any of those kind of things are about a package, a, a formula rather than a single event. And that is a, that is a difficult concept for, for a lot of people to get away from because of what we call Kirkpatrick Level 3, which is on-the-job application, is not without its, uh, its criticism because what a lot of people think of that business leaders, supervisors, and even a lot of people in learning and development think we can't control what happens after training, so let's just stick with what we can control, and that's the classroom. Uh, and because it's a minefield out there, because they may go and find out that there are some things that aren't happening, and mm-hmm. they will find that. Some people are not applying it, and it could upset some people, and it could make them think, well, uh, are you saying that I'm not doing a good job of, of leading, or, or is there something wrong with our, with our company? Mm-hmm. So this is not an easy sell because... There's a lot of uh, of uh, tradition, and there's a lot of advocacy to keep things the way they are. That the senior leaders give us marching orders for training, we deliver the training, and hope for the best, and everybody will be happy. But they won't be happy because if people don't apply it, it won't get the job done. So it's a, it it is not without its risks of people saying, "Go back to where you belong, back to the training class." and uh, leave the performance to us. Mm. And, and do you think, because um, I, I hear that, uh, or some of the criticism I hear of, about the, you know, people talk about the Kirkpatrick model, um, it, it, it can be quite evocative for people, you know, either in terms of advocacy for it or, um, uh, or, or challenge against it. And, and one of the challenges that I often hear is that it's overly simplistic. Um, and, and the you know, it, it's yeah, it's just overly simplistic. And what would I guess? How would you respond to that as a as a challenge? Well, for one thing, uh, if they're doing traditional Kirkpatrick, it is simple because they think Kirkpatrick is you give a smile sheet after the class, you mm-hmm. give them a test before they leave, and you do a ninety day survey. That's simple, uh, but that's not that's traditional. But that's not the New World Kirkpatrick. The New World mm-hmm. Kirkpatrick is is much different from from that. It's much more focused on business results and mission results and performance. But but to be honest with you, Bill, um, I think the Kirkpatrick model is pretty simple. Now it is not easy to apply, but the concepts are simple. But there's a lot of resistance to it and a lot of misunderstanding that this is really about change management and all uh, the majority of it has to do with getting people to apply what they learned. Simple concepts, difficult to execute because of human nature. People don't want to be told what to do. They don't want people watching over them. They don't want uh, help sometimes. They just want to be left alone. But business doesn't work well uh, under those circumstances. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I... Because I mean, I, if, if, if full disclosure, you know, as I said in my intro, I, you know, I, I run the New World Kirkpatrick Evaluation Program um, on behalf of uh, DPG um, in the UK and you know, and, and in other countries as well. And the uh, and if anybody wants to find out more about what that program is, the, uh, both the bronze program and the silver program, I'll put links in the show notes so that um, you can go find out when the you know, when future programs are taking place and so on. I was working. I was, I was doing some work recently with um, somebody in an NHS trust, and they were talking about mandatory training. So there is a, uh, a regular mandatory training program that happens around how a particular um, uh, cannula is fitted to a patient, and there are certain protocols that need to be followed. And the mandatory training outlines in really clear detail what those protocols are. Yet the hospital is still experiencing high infection rates of those particular cannulas. So something is falling down. And what we know, though, is it's not the training because the training tells the members of staff exactly what they need to do. Um, and we have the, and to your point, we have the the surveys and the tests that show us that, um, uh, that people 
understand and have the skills to do it because they're observed in the room and they they're tested on their required knowledge and they leave the room and say they're happy yet what we find is that when they're back on the wards they're not following the the most um uh, the safest process and when i was talking with the individual they were saying well we shouldn't apply the model to that then because that's nothing to do with learning and i was and i said no absolutely the opposite you know, we've got to, you know, we can absolutely apply the model to that because what this is doing is is helping us work out where is it falling down. You know, we can follow the trail to go, right, where is it falling down? If we genuinely have uh, have um, strong evidence that the, the, the people enjoy what the learning that they take part in, if we know that they can display the knowledge and skills that they have, we then need to go and find out what it is in the, at that level three, at the on-the-job application bit, we need to find out what, what either what it is that's causing it to fall down or what else we need to put into place in that environment to make sure that the levels of infection decrease because the cost of the NHS in that example is absolutely massive. Um, yet, the, yet the conception was, oh, well, we can't apply it here because it's not about training. And, and like you said, it's not about training necessarily. It's about change management. Bill, you're, you're so right. And for instance, when, when I talk to someone, say, what's your job? They say, I am an instructional designer. I say, well, from this day forward, you're no longer going to just be an instructional designer where you design formal classroom instruction. You are now going to be a learning and performance architect. They say, I am? I said, of course you are. They say, what does that mean? I say, well, what it means is instead of just designing that formal training, you are also going to be designing what happens before training to set the mm -hmm. table and what happens after training, this performance support and accountability, Phil, that you were talking about, to make sure you're at least making recommendations and being involved with making sure people uh, are reinforced and recognized and held accountable and encouraged to apply what they learn. So it's really the package approach rather than the event approach. And... Mm -hmm. And I, sometimes I find a real challenge for myself um, in it. So, for example, yesterday I was uh, I was doing a piece of work on on resilience. So I was running a resilience workshop for for a client. And um, I, if I'm if I'm brutally honest with myself, do I think it's going to make a big difference in the organisation? No, because there are other things that are happening within the organisation that are, are, will limit its effect. But also, um, I just don't think the organisation is interested in in evaluating beyond did people have a good time. Um, that, you know, when I had the initial uh, kind of call with the client to explore it, when the, uh, the inquiry came in and we had a call to explore what we you know, what we we're going to do and what we we're going to cover, and we during that, I, you know, we underlined all, lots of systemic challenges that are happening within the organisation. But when I started to explore. And, and kind of go towards those aspects. I was told, no, no, no. We just want you to do a resilience program, please. And it really fascinated me that um, there's still a um, uh, still an, an approach which is, no, we just actually we just want a one day course, and essentially we just, you know, they didn't. The words weren't uttered. We just want people to have a good time, and that's it. Um, but it, it felt like there's still that that view and that that or that approach, and that quite surprised me. I think. Well, Phil. You're, you uh, are making some really good points there because the new world Kirkpatrick model starts with business results. And what you did is you, you I know you, you asked them, what are you hoping to, to have accomplished from this course? And they basically said, well, we just want people to be trained in it. Uh, and of course, then you've got to be honest and say, well, then don't expect resilience to occur in the workforce and, and you become a resilient organization. They'll say, why do you say that? Because we won't, there's, with no follow-up, it just won't happen. So what we have to do is be honest with, with the leaders. And if they say, we want these grand results, but we want it, we just want training, you have to say, it won't happen. There is no program we can possibly just deliver in and of itself to accomplish the goals that you said. Hopefully, they'll say, well, then what do we need to do? And that's where you say, I'm glad you asked. What needs to happen is to have a package approach that focuses on resilient behaviors and behaviors that will cause resilience and encouragement that will then manifest through the culture. And so uh, 
we just, the evaluation has to be about the truth, not this charade, not this popularity contest that it currently is so often, but the truth of it is, is, you know, it needs to occur in the classroom and in the field, or there will be no significant results. And uh, then it's their call, right, Phil? They may say, well, we still just want you to deliver the class. And, you know, and sometimes you do it. Sometimes you just say, well, I don't do that. Hmm. And a, a couple of times so far, uh, Jim, you mentioned the package approach. Um, I wonder if it might be worthwhile just kind of uh, exploring that a little bit more. What What is it you mean by or, or uh, yeah, so let's go for what is it you mean by a package approach? What does that mean for you? Well, the first thing we start with a concept we call necessities for success. And Phil, okay. for instance, if you are, are dealing with, uh, let's say it's the, the, uh, the, the infections, you know, the hospital-born yeah, infections, yeah, yeah. Uh, what you'd want, it, if there's something in a culture that is going to uh, cause problems for that, you need to talk right up front with the senior leaders and say, before we train people in washing their hands and, and documentation, all that stuff, what we need to establish first is, is some kind of monitoring system in the clinics and in the hospitals uh, to make sure that the supervisors are prepared to observe uh, for those behaviors and to correct people or to, when they're not doing it and to encourage them when they are. So you want to make sure you kind of set that up first and set the, set the table. And then the rest of the package means that you are designing uh, something that happens after training, either from a support point of view, which are maybe signs in the in the restrooms uh, or uh, a community of practice where people talk about the challenges and how to counter the, the infections. Mm-hmm. But, but the other half of this is about accountability, where there are touch points and there's observation and, you know, maybe five or six different things, some of them designed to support, some of them are designed to uh, hold people accountable and make sure that that package is then executed in the field. And if it is, those infections are gonna go down, there's gonna be more positive patient outcomes from that. Hmm. I like that, that's a really nice way of, of looking at it. So you talked about, uh, so there needs to be something to, to monitor and to, to kind of check that people are doing what they, what they need to be doing, that they're following the processes correctly, they're using the right equipment, they're, um, you know, documenting whatever they need to do in the right way. And then there's also ways to support and encourage the behaviors to happen. So that might be through, like you said, posters or job aids or checklists or that sort of thing. Is that right? Right. And especially that's back to the human factor. You, you can't just give them, it's important you give them job aids and help desk, and, but somehow there have to be regular touch points where we're, we're, you bring people together and say, how are we doing? Who's struggling with this? Who's finding success? Uh, and, and Phil, what, are you ready for this one? In yeah, one hospital, what they did is they determined that one of the things they were going to monitor is how much soap was, uh, was gone through, through the soap dispensers in the washrooms. And what the people learned to do is as they washed their hands, they pushed the dispenser five or six times and had the soap just run into the, into the wash bowl into the sink, and then people are saying, oh, look, people are washing their hands because we're going through more soap than we were before. Mm. Can you admit, so what you have to do is make sure that people aren't kind of sneaking around these things because of human nature. This, this is what we're trying to counter is human nature. We don't always want to go and make changes in our life, in our lifestyle, in our behaviors. And we're, we're programmed to kind of go what's, what's familiar and what's comfortable. So this package is all about countering human nature because very few of us are wired to say, oh, I just learned something from Phil about resiliency. I am going to go and on my own really work to make sure I become a resilient person. We can't count on that. We have to stack the deck with this, these job aids and so forth in order to make sure there's a, there's a critical mass of people mm-hmm. who are actually doing what they need to do. Mm. So, and, and this is where I think the emotion bit is really important. So if I stick with the with the same example, we were, when I was doing some exploration um, with the client from the NHS, what, there, there were a number of things that came out, but two of the biggest um, challenges were, one um, was the, the speed aspect so one of the requirements of the process was that you you apply something you apply a 
a disinfectant, for want of a better phrase. I can't remember what the actual technical term is, but you, you, you apply a, a, a product to the skin where you're going to fit the cannula and you have to wait 60 seconds for it to be fully effective. So it takes 60 seconds for that to be fully effective and to um, destroy any um, uh, any bacteria or viruses that are on the skin that could then subsequently cause okay. it. Mm-hmm. But, what, but what happens is people aren't waiting those 60 seconds. They're applying it, waiting, I don't know, 10, 20 seconds or something. <laughs> and, and then they're applying it because there's a perception. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, so the, the, the perception either is that they need to be quicker to, to go and treat other patients or that um well because I, I did a bit of you know probing and questioning and one of the other things that gets reported is oh well i've never seen one become infected you know i, I don't leave it at 60 seconds and i've never seen one be infected so therefore it's okay um but actually the just because and, and that's that the, that's the human factor isn't it i haven't seen it so therefore it doesn't happen but that doesn't mean it doesn't actually happen uh, in reality wow that that uh, and and that's why Part of the, the, the L&D department or talent management, learning development, whatever you want to call us, yeah. is to make sure that those kind of things are monitored in the field because, because if they're, they're not effective, uh, there won't be any results and people will scratch their head and say, what went wrong? And 90% of the time, if there's mission failure, business failure, patient outcome failure, resilience failure, whatever it is, it is due to the breakdown of what we call those required drivers, those drivers of application, those drivers of behavior. So part of our job should be to be in the field to be monitoring to make sure that the coaching sessions are happening and the mm. help desk are being uh, are being utilized and, and the touch bases are, are happening. It's a whole new world. And the other thing, Phil, is yeah, we can't leave. We don't want to leave the classroom out of this either because so many classrooms are focusing now on the learning objectives and the competencies and the instructor's job should be helping people see beyond the learning objectives into the behavioral expectations and making sure that a lot of that training is about now what's going to happen after today, what will we expect of you to do back at the job and how will you get encouragement to do it. So we've got to to get out of the, the belief that the learning objectives and the competencies are the holy grail of the training purpose. Mm. And, and I think, so I, we've mentioned the classroom a few times, but I, I, I guess I'd like to extend that as well and say, I think it's, I think it is, is, it is also the digital stuff as well. So the, um, you know, whether it be an instructional designer designing a face-to-face program or designing an online um, you know, solution, whether that be something that's, you know, some kind of gamification thing or whether it's some kind of kind of role play um, games type scenario or there's what, whatever it might be, there's a, you know, there is that requirement to think beyond the, beyond the, the learning itself in whatever way that learning is, um, in whatever way that learning is put together. Absolutely. Mm. So, I think the the idea of of business partnering and and being more aligned with um with the business is is something that is a narrative that's been running now for oh, it's got to be at least eight years if not ten years I think um and I was listening to uh, I was listening to a podcast by the, the the folk at Good Practice recently and one of their guests said they they feel as though that um that message is finally getting through that there's more. Um, there's more activity suggesting that mm-hmm. learning and development departments are aligning themselves to the organization. And, and that, that is a big kind of big um, confidence booster for me. I think one of my worries though, and I don't know, I was, I'm curious as to where, where your experience with this is. In my experience though, I, I don't find practitioners thinking about evaluation at the outset in that way. They, they're being really clear about what the business, you know, how it might support a business goal or what, which aspects of the business strategy it's supporting. But what I think is missing is the is then going, okay, so now I know that, how am I going to track the extent to which this activity is actually affecting that outcome? Oh, very good. Yeah, Phil, you're, you're, you're all over that. And, and this means starting with level four, which is results, and it's building uh, relationships and processes, uh, bridges, we call them, from you, from our department, our functional area, 
to the senior leaders to make sure that rather than just ask them what will success look like and then we just run back and deliver our training, it is finding out what kind of evidence will you need to see ultimately in order to say, job well done. You know, what kind of uh, HR metrics of retention, what kind of patient safety, patient outcome, patient satisfaction metrics, Mm -hmm. uh, what kind of turnover. And that way, that's good news because that tells us what kind of things that we'll be tracking to make sure those things are happening. So that's the, that's the, the, the beauty of how level three and level four work together. The package is delivered uh, post-training to make sure people apply it. And then you start to monitor what are the signs of success that we're starting to see. And Phil, you, you know, and you teach this so, so beautifully that Kirkpatrick is no longer level four is did it work or not? Mm-hmm. But it is, is it working along the way? You know, because this is our early warning detection system where we're monitoring progress. And if we don't see it, we send a team out to the field to find out what is the holdup, what's the barrier, and you fix it before the patient outcomes or whatever it is, is in jeopardy. You know, the, the mission of the organization. So really we want people to focus on, is it working rather than just being tempted to, to answer the question, did it work? And the other part of that is you need to get senior leaders to to sign on to these major programs, not just sign off on them and sign a check and put their feet on their desk and wait for the results. The more they are involved in this encouragement, support, and accountability, actively involved, the human factor, both from a senior leader and from a supervisor point of view, the more likely there will be application, the more likely there will be results. And that is what you need to sell the seniors on is getting them as champions and not just passive support. Hmm. And, and I find that's one of the one of the biggest misconceptions that I, I think exists around Kirkpatrick is that it, it goes one, two, three, four. You know, that you start at reaction and then you go learning and then you go behavior and then you go results. And almost the questions that go with it are, did they like it? Did they learn it? Mm-hmm. What are they doing differently, and did it work? And and uh, you know the the for me as you said, it's all about turning it the other end. It starts at four, and then it works this way backwards. It's like, well, why are we doing it? Then what do we need people to do to deliver the why are we doing it? So what do they need to know to do the behaviours that we need them to do? And how can we you know how can we make sure that that you know they they enjoy it along the way? It's, it very much is a so yeah, turn turn it around, turn it on its head. It's four, three, two, one, not one, two, three, four. Exactly. And I'm encouraging any who listen to this podcast. These are simple concepts, but there there's a lot of depth to each one. And Phil does. I just got to tell you, Phil, you do an excellent job of making it practical for people and not so overwhelmingly complex that it's absolutely un. Uh, people are unable to execute it. I know you keep it. You know, as simple as possible, and yet, uh, and yet, uh, you, with a practitioner in mind of how to how to actually make it be successful. Yeah, absolutely. So, one of the things I said at, at the opening of the podcast then was that um, one of the areas that people I think struggle with is is evaluating some of the you know, whether you know, some people call them soft skills or some people call them um, you know, critical skills or. Um, or, or, but or, or any of those kind of that those more emotive or behavioral aspects. So I, I was thinking from your, you know, you, you've been in around evaluation for a long time as have I. So I, I thought it might be useful for the listener to hear from from you and me then any sort of techniques or hints or tips or approaches that people could use if they're looking to evaluate some of those, yeah, sort of softer skills or those yes. aspects in the workplace. I'm glad you asked that question. One of my favorite ones because there is the the, uh, the global excuse out there where they I say, "Well, global excuse, isn't it?" They say, "Well, this Kirkpatrick model only works for sales kinds of things. It doesn't work for softer skills." And it is an excuse because it's not the truth at all. What happens is that people buy some leadership program or critical thinking or something that they call soft skills, mm-hmm. and they get all charged up into the activities and into the competencies. And what they fail to do is to begin with the end in mind and say, all right, this leadership program, 
what are the ultimate mission? What are the ultimate business results we're looking for from this? And they don't do that. They mm-hmm. just get so excited about what color is your wheel, what kind of animal are you today, and all the games they play. And Now, those are necessary, but you have to, they have to be purposeful towards application and towards mission. And the soft skills are no different than a sales program. It's just you have to make sure you start with the end in mind and, and focus on what are the behaviors people have to do in the field rather than what are the competencies that they have to uh, have uh, under their belt kind of thing. Mm. Yeah, and I, I think that um, the temptation for, for sort of HR or learning folk to build a big, massive competency framework where, where it's not needed, I think, is a, um, uh, is, is a strong one. Um, because yeah, the focus is you know so yes yes to do you know, for somebody to um, well, I'm trying to think of a real life example that I can um, that I can choose. So uh, so I did some I did some work through one of the um, programs that that I run with DPG with a fitness club, and the desired result was zero patient uh, not patient sorry I'm m- merging my examples zero. Uh-huh. Um, uh, customer accidents um, yeah. and it creating a, a very strong health and safety culture within the within the fitness clubs for that organization and um, I thoroughly enjoyed putting that evaluation plan together because it, it that that is a very you know, yes there's a tangible metric at the end which is the number of accidents for, per customer right. Um, right. so that's very tangible but the way to get there is is not anything tangible at all you know it's all about attitude it's all about um you know behaviors that happen within the club it's all about the ethos and the and, and the you know the way that people think about the the work that they do and you know when they're walking through a changing room are they picking up a towel when they're um you know seeing somebody using a piece of equipment um incorrectly do they go over and correct them you know those sorts of things so the Whilst the outcome might be quite tangible, the the actual title of the program, which is you know creating a health and safety culture within our clubs, which is what the you know that was the when I, when I asked what program you know you're looking to to do, it was you know we want to have a culture of health and safety within our clubs. Eventually, we you know through lots of questioning, we got to the point where the, the business mission and result was zero patient um, patient done it again zero customer uh, accidents within uh, the club. Um, but the the way that we went about building the critical behaviors was was really different because we had to then say right well what behaviors do we need and from what groups of people is it from the um, is it from the center managers you know the people that manage that individual um, club those club managers is it from the personal trainers is it from the instructors is it from the uh, health and safety champions is it from the um, regional managers you know who who needs to do what within it. Um, and it was pinning down what those behaviors were. Yeah, Phil, that's a, that is an excellent example of what needs to happen. And uh, it, it, it takes some influence and some persuasion for senior leaders because you're trying to change their whole mindset about training. And, and we've got to end the myth that training alone is enough to get it, get it done. But you, you teach and you've just explained a pathway to get there, it's reverse engineering, you know, starting with the end and then what behaviors are required and how will we make sure people have the skills necessary to, to perform their job. But one thing that is also important is that you maintain relationships with the senior leaders along the way and say, hey, if it's all right with you for this mission critical program, how about if we meet every three weeks? And we kind of go over things of what's working and who's doing well and which units, which clinics, which hospitals, and which ones it isn't. And we kind of come up with some interventions to to help those who are struggling and to congratulate those who are. So it is a relationship. It's ongoing with them. Uh, Phil, another example. How about this one? We work with uh, a large aircraft manufacturer in the United States. Uh, There aren't many, so you could probably figure out who it is. And they called me the other day and said, we're doing your level three and it's not working. I said, well, what are you doing? They said, well, just what you told us. I said, well, what did I tell you? 
uh, they said, well, you said to send a 30, 60, 90 day survey to every supervisor for every single class that any of their people take. That means they get a they survey on every student for every class. I said, I, I told you that, huh? Which, which I didn't. I said, why do you say it's not working? Well, they said the supervisors, first of all, we're getting a 4% response rate on our 30, 60, 90 day surveys. And most of it is hate mail. They're telling us, we don't have two hours a day to fill out your surveys. And Phil, here's the, here's the second thing that was more telling. They said, we don't even know who you are. They're basically saying there's been no relationship. We don't know you, who you are. You have not earned the right to send us anything. So what this company had to do is spend time crossing the bridge from their comfortable L&D world into the world of work. They had to seek first to understand, as Covey suggested, to try and find out what are the needs. And the human-to-human contact, again, gives them relationships where ultimately they can send a survey. They don't send 30, 60, 90 days and flood their desk, but targeted surveys because they've earned the right and it's part of a level three evaluation, not the whole thing. So I guess that links back into something we talked about already, which is about you know, the, the closer the alignment between learning and development slash performance and the, and the business is a, you know, is a good thing because it's about, you know, yes. yes, understanding the, the links to organizational goals and priorities, but also it's having those relationships there and having those relationships in place that, you know, also allow you to, um, um, it also allows you to give you that. What, I can't remember what you said. It allows you to earn the right to uh, to go and ask those potentially difficult and challenging questions. So that started with um, what techniques, hints, or tips have you used when you're looking to evaluate some of the softer skills or some of the emotive aspects of the workplace. Is there anything else that you would um, that you'd like to add um, just around that? Because I think it is a, and I guess I'm coming back to it because I think it's a key issue that a lot of people face. And you, you said yourself, it's one of those. What do you call it? A global excuse. Um, so, yeah. What, yeah. What other hints or tips would you give people to to try and address the global excuse that you can't you know you can't evaluate those softer aspects? Well, there are really two words that that I encourage people to fall back on when they're trying to make an argument. One is mission, and that's when these soft skills or any training is, is it becomes the games, it becomes the shiny new object, it becomes the the training, the learning objectives, competencies, always try and bring them back to the purpose of all those things are just stops on the way, steps mm-hmm. in the journey about mission, contribution to mission. Not that, Bill, your resilience class or your, you know, uh, infection prevention class is solely responsible for patient outcomes, but it, it's supposed to make its fair share of contribution. So whenever people start to get focus more on the training and focus on their turf and getting uh, getting protective of uh, not wanting to, to any level three data to come out you say well this is about mission this is this is not about our own individual uh, uh, turf it's about mm-hmm. mission and the other thing the other word is truth and truth means we've got to stop just giving partial truth uh, when it comes to if we only use one source of, of data collection, uh, surveys or tests, we have a concept called blended evaluation, similar to blended learning, only it means we want to use a variety of methods and sources in the classroom and in the field to get as much information as we can. And for the soft skills, especially in the field, that's very important that we use different sources that we're talking to and surveying and, and uh, interviewing. Uh, and using different methods to get as much of the truth as we can about what's happening in the performance world, which then is going to be the key to applause for a job well done, which is level four. So those two words, you know, uh, truth and mission, throw those in with the word package, and you pretty much have Kirk, New World Kirkpatrick. Mm. And I, I think there's um, a disproportionate weighting that's given to quantitative data um, and 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 there there is a i think there's a there's a there's a misconception that all senior leaders care about is the quantitative data that you can provide that shows, uh, oh. shows well 
Bill, you're killing me. You're, you're, <laughs> I, I'm, I gotta sit down. It's because that is so prevalent. And they're saying our tests are quantitative because we get numbers. Our surveys are quantitative because we get, we get numbers. Therefore, those are metrics and that is much more valid than any of this other soft uh, anecdotal stuff. And it is not true. First of all, most of the surveys people are delivering are garbage. They're questions that are not giving much truth. They're questions that are serving the trainer rather than really trying to understand what's going on with the, with the student, the students. And, yeah. uh, and, and second of all, we don't just ask for people's opinion. Did they like the class? Ask the supervisors, uh, did, are your people doing their job better? What we try and get is quantitative historical data from those interviews, from those uh, questionnaires and things where a supervisor, if we help them to see the data along the way, they can ultimately say, here's how we used to do this, this uh, infection prevention program. We used to just use education and hope for the best, and the numbers didn't change. But now that we're using the package approach that, that Phil helped us to develop, we are now seeing an improvement in the behaviors. We're seeing actually performance improvement, which is leading to fewer infection, which is leading to fewer readmissions and, and uh, the lower satisfaction. And so they can actually provide numbers if we help them and guide them how to do that. And that becomes quantitative. We call it historical comparisons. And I'm telling you, Phil, the senior leaders and the sponsors of programs and those who hold your future in their hands are much more impressed with that than they are smile sheets and pre and post test scores. They don't give a darn about those. No, I, I agree completely. And, and I also think you, you're right that you know, if we can get that quantitative data that can show at an organizational level, uh, you know, yep. impact or at least con you know, or, or contribution of impacts, I think is important. And, and alongside that, the, um, I run the risk of sounding a bit cliche now, but I think the 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 power of the of the storytelling that goes with it can can never be underestimated. So I remember I used to run um, a leadership program in a local council, and when it came to the um, when it came to the presentation of impact, um, I got the people that were participants in the program to deliver the ah. presentation and not me. Um, uh -huh. Don't get me wrong. I work, work very hard behind the scenes to to build the you know to build the story and to work with them to get them to practice it and so on. Um, but it was the, it was the stories that those individuals told about impacts on them, their practice, their work, and their team. Those were the compelling things that got the reinvestment in the program. Yes, you know we the fact that we could show improvement. Um, in um, 360 degree review, you know that for me, that's one of the default settings that L and D folk have. I'm going off on a bit of a tangent, but I'll come back. You know, so oh, if we're doing behavior change, let's do a 360 before and after, and therefore there's our evidence. And well, that's not evidence. That's not evidence of impact. That's evidence of um, you know people's change of perceptions potentially, but it doesn't tell us how right. it's impacted you know right. teams or individuals or customers or residents or anything like that. that. That's where the qualitative data has to come in. So. I'm not, you know, I, I need to be clear. What I'm saying is that I think qualitative data needs to have equal importance with that quantitative data. Because exactly. as you said later on, it's a massive part of the story. It's a massive part of the, um, you know, of the, the, yeah, it's a massive part of the story. Well, Phil, you, you know, we call them lawyers in our country. I don't know if you still call them barristers over there, but uh, they win in court, not just with presenting the expert witness data, but you have to put the weeping widow on the stand and tell her story. It's the same with this. Jim Collins talks about capturing the minds and hearts mm. of the learner. We also have to capture the minds and hearts of our juries, of our stakeholders. Yeah, and you yeah. can't just do that by throwing numbers at them. And Phil, the other thing that you did is you let them tell their story. And what happens is, you're, you, that's why you are the foremost authority in the Kirkpatrick model in, in the UK, because of what you told us your, your secret is, and that is to let them get the applause uh, for, you know, different supervisors and, mm. and different employees who have, have, but you know what, in the end, those leaders are going to point to you and say, we know who was behind all of this. And rather than just seeing you, Phil, as a training provider or a consultant, 
They see you as the catalyst and the architect, the orchestrator of a whole change management initiative. And that is when we know it is the ultimate destination of New World Kirkpatrick is when they point to us and say, job well done, and thank you for letting my people, you know, our people, take some of the glory. That is the ultimate uh, indicator that you have successfully executed the new world. Mm, definitely. And um, so one of the things that we've we've mentioned uh, kind of indirectly or implicitly so far is this, uh, the isolation argument, which, you know, that, yeah. and again, this is a very emotive um, topic, mm -hmm. you know, so how, how do I isolate my uh, my contribution to um, to to the ultimate result. I can't possibly say that my program has affected this outcome um, because there's lots of other things that that go into that as well. So, um, yeah, how, how do you? What are your thoughts on on that isolation argument or that isolation point? Uh, just to put it mildly, it's garbage. And <laughs> let me explain why. Well, are you calling rubbish? Yeah. Uh, and let me just tell you the reason why is because when you say you said, I'll use your quote, Phil, you said, my contribution to to the results. Now, if my contribution is strictly delivering training, that's all they got, you know, and I guess they have to use the isolation because they had no other involvement in any of the package, any of the, the follow-up stuff. Mm -hmm. But the problem is, first of all, training alone only provides about 12 to 15% of what people actually apply. And uh, that mm -hmm. isn't enough to get much results. And the other thing, Phil, is in, in the new world model where you are building relationships with supervisors and you're following up with students who are working hard to be performers and people manning the help desk and communities of practice, what the isolationists are basically doing is saying, we are factoring all those other people out of the equation when we go before our jury, when we go before our stakeholders, and we're going to thump our own chest and say, this is what our class delivered as far as the, the return on investment. And so, first of all, there isn't much uh, return. And second of all, they are cutting the throats, their own throats, because they are discrediting the people that they need in order to create the results in the first place. So it's career suicide is what it is. Yeah. And, and that's one of the things that, that I say all the time on, on both in the programs that, that I run, but also just generally, you know, the the being able to stand somewhere and say this group of people had a really big impact on the success of this and that group right. of people are, are nothing to do with me yet i know right. without them we would have really really struggled and the impact would have been negligible surely that is a you know, if you're if you put yourself in this in the seat of a finance director or a managing director or a HR director or whoever, you know, anybody that's sitting up on that, that senior team level, would you rather hear, I didn't bother engaging anybody else and I just wanted to see what individually my thing would do, or do you want to hear somebody say, I realise that without this, that with these people, we can make a bigger difference quicker, so we work together to make it happen. Right. What would you rather hear? Surely you'd rather hear yeah. people are working together within your organization, not trying to work apart from each other. Yeah. So, yes, yep. Why, yep. why would you even bother trying to isolate everything else out? It's about noting, yeah, if you can, if you're going to go so far as to really understand, if you're going to go so far as to really understand what the actual problem is, you know, so if we, if we deal with that classic kind of all mm -hmm. the taker mentality, you know, business says, give us leadership training, we say, okay to one where you say well all right then well, where's this coming from what's going on you yeah, tell me what's happening at the moment what are the you know what's this leadership training hoping to do what problems is it hoping to to solve what issues is it trying to address what um you know what questions will it answer what um you know what other things are happening that will enable these people to perform or and what will the impact you know if you're asking all of those questions to then at the end of it disregard all of that other stuff it's just folly in in my books it's, you know, it's, you've done you've done the work to work out you know, to, you've mapped out what's gonna what's what the problem current situation is and at the same time you've mapped out the bedrock for your evaluation strategy because you're saying right these exactly are, you know, so. coming back to the package you talked about earlier on these are some of the things that will enable people 
So I'm, I'm doing a, I'm about to finish a 18 month leadership program. That I've been, no, not sorry, a talent program that I've been running with a client. And what we've been doing along the way is we, we put in some good practice. So we, we did lots of investigation up front. Um, and then we engaged the line managers, for example. We said, right, we're going to, we, one of the things that we know is important is the way that we engage line managers. So we've run focus groups with those line managers during the program, not as consistently as we could. Um, or regularly as we could, but we have. And those focus groups have served a number of purposes. One of those is we tell the line managers what the learners are getting. So we say, right, this is the, this is the content that we're going through. Um, also, this is what we're expecting them to do. These are the actions that we're asking them to do as a result. And these are, this is what we need from you as supervisors along the way. And that was kind of the content of the first one. And then what we did for all the subsequent ones is add in, and what changes are you noticing so far? You know, what are you noticing about the individuals that are going through it? And we've been capturing that, um, you know, either in notes or audio recording the meeting. And all of that is evaluation data that is going to form part of the um, part of the, the uh, evaluation presentation that we'll do at the end when we talk about the impact of it. So we've been evaluating this program for the 18 months that it's been running. And I think that is one of the biggest areas that, again, people let themselves down on is they think evaluation happens after the learning has finished. But what I've done, you know, so as well as the line managers though, that each individual's had a coach or a mentor. Um, each individual in the program has had a, a journal that they can complete uh, themselves. We've also run focus groups with the participants as well. And, all, and, and, part, and we've run actual learning sets as well. Now, the perception could be all of those things are are designed to support learning. And yes, they are. But more, more importantly, they are data points and information points for me as the practitioner to find out, are we on track? And back, you said earlier on about, um, we didn't name them, I don't think, but the, the leading indicators, the checkpoints that you would expect to see on a journey, that's where all of the data is coming from to tell me that we're on track. And we lost our way. You know, We lost our way for, because we had to, the business had some really important commercial aspects that it needed to focus on. So we didn't do any work with the participants for six months. And that really annoyed them. You know, the, the fact that we, we essentially stopped any intervention with them for six months and that put us back. But I know that and we could put in, um, we could put in place um, steps and um, solutions to address that. You know, part of it was about apologizing and saying, look, we're really sorry that we had to do that. This, you know, these are the reasons why. And, dealing with a lot of the emotive aspects that sit around it but the i think yeah I'm, I'm very much on my soapbox and i'll step off in a second so what am i saying that i think we need to get wrap up practitioners need to wrap their heads around that you are gathering evaluation data all of the time you just need to keep it and record it somehow so that when you come to share the impact of whatever it is that you've done you can talk about the things that have enabled it the things that have got in the way of it succeeding the things that have um, fast tracked to success, the things that without which it wouldn't have made a difference. So one of the variables that, that seems to have come out so far is we had a mix of internal coaches and mentors and external coaches and mentors and the reported feedback from the participants. And I'm waiting for the data to come back from the coaches and mentors, but the participants that have had external coaches and mentors value that relationship much higher than those that have had internal coaches and mentors. And that's an interesting piece of data for me to think about, well, what are we going to do with that then? Does that mean we change our approach and we get all external and, and so on and so on? Sorry, I, I will now stop and step off my soapbox. Sorry. Well said. That's a great <laughs> wrap up of all we've talked about. That's excellent. So are, are there any other myths or misconceptions that you think, Jim, around, um, around either evaluation in general or the Kirkpatrick model in particular? that either we haven't already addressed or are there any other ones that you think we need to address or, or put to bed? That's a fine question. And, uh, uh, yeah, the, 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 no, Bill, the, we, I could, I could make up some stuff, but, uh, <laughs> it's about package. It's about truth. It's about mission. It's a, but it's a disruptive model because it will disrupt tradition. And, mm. um, and then the main thing is <clears throat> training alone will not get the job done, even though there's a great lobby and a lot of money at stake. Even our own associations are trying to tell us that it will. If we just buy more games, if we just buy more competency models, more leadership models, train better, make it look prettier, make them have more fun, 
that's a lie. It just isn't true. And, uh, but that's where the money is and that's where the lie is coming from. At least that's my, my view. So, uh, stay the course, uh, take the road less traveled is my encouragement and get people like Phil to help you on the journey. And, and if people wanted to, to know more, obviously I'll put a link into the, um, to the face-to-face programs and workshops that we run. What in terms of kind of books or, or articles or anything like that, that people could, if, you know, because I, I think there's a lot of folk out there that, that think the Kirkpatrick model is the classic one, two, three, four, you know, as, uh, ah. as soul, your dad would have, um, would have kind of articulated as, um, yes. but where can people go to find out more? Oh, I was, uh, our website has quite a bit on that. There's, there's a book that Wendy and I wrote, uh, all last year, I think it was or year before Kirkpatrick's four levels of training evaluation that is in, uh, published okay. by the American, uh, the Association for Talent Development, ATD, and that's, Phil, we, we pretty much got it in there. It's it's all in there and uh, a step-by-step process that uh, kind of mimics uh, the bronze and silver program that you were talking about. But uh, we would encourage people to sign up for, uh, you know, webinars, uh, future mm-hmm. podcasts, and also for the, the, the training that, that Phil mentioned. Okay. So I'll make sure in the in the show notes that go along with this episode, then I'll, I'll put links into the KirkpatrickPartners.com website and also upcoming events okay. that you've got in there. And I'll also put a link to the uh, to the book that you talked about as well. So I'll put a link to to that one. And um, beyond yours and Wendy's work, is there any other anybody else's work that you think uh, you know around evaluation that you think is worth a worth a look or a, a, an additional um, investigation? Well, I do know that we have about 60 different free resources, maybe 70 different free resources mm. of sample surveys and things. Um, uh, if you just go on our website, KirkpatrickPartners.com, and click on the resources tab, we've got white papers and uh, uh, tools and tips. And, uh, uh, and if you just sign up for our website, we have weekly newsletters that, that we usually give you some good nuggets as well. Mm. Okay. All right. So a couple of final questions to pull it together then. Are there any other everyday practical things that people can do to help them evaluate more effectively, do you think? Hmm, practical. Yes, here's one. Uh, Don't rely so much in the field on the supervisor always being the one to review and to observe and to audit those kind of things. Uh, mm. They all say, oh, we need the supervisor to do all that. That's a vertical hierarchy, you know, that kind of the, the boss subordinate thing. More and more people who are being successful with this across the world are using more colleague, peer-to-peer communities of practice where they meet regularly, whether it's uh, virtual or, or human-human kind of thing, and encourage each other and challenge each other. And the supervisor pops in once in a while. Or, Phil, if it's your program, you would pop in once in a while, mm. find out how it's going. But it would be our job to help create that community of practice, make sure it's running, because that is <clears throat> doesn't have the stigma of the boss, and people are more honest about it, and they get after each other, and they encourage each other. So that would be one one more tip. Wonderful. That's great. Thank you very much, Jim. Um, what else did I want to add? So there were a couple of things. So uh, also you mentioned about Jim Collins. So I'll put a link in the show notes to his book, Good to Great. Um, we also talked about the complexities of surveys. So there's a guy called Paul Thorinson. Um, he goes on Twitter. He goes by the Twitter handle at SurveyGuy2. And again, he he's a really good resource to help get people thinking much more deeply and clearly about what effective survey questions can look like. Because I think, again, there is a... Um, I remember I did a piece of work a while ago where I was asked to review a employee engagement survey that a company had written themselves, and there was just so little thought put into the um, into the questions that were being asked, and and, and so on. And, and Paul's a really good resource to to help think about um, you know what what sort of what a good question or what a good bank of questions might look like. So I'll put a link to his profile um, in there as well. All right, then, um, to, to finally wrap us up and put us together, then, Jim, is there anything else, anything else that you're thinking or feeling or want to say? You know what? I, I just want to tell people who are going to be uh, listening to this that uh, uh, congratulations. You have an opportunity to, uh, to, to go against the grain a little bit, but uh, if you explain it in a way that's about mission and 
success, uh, I think you'll see uh, results that are that are far beyond what you uh, have in the past. So thank you for doing that. And Phil, thanks for inviting me in on this. Oh, thanks for coming on, Jim. It's been great to have you on today. I've really, really enjoyed it. So thank you very much for your time. You've been listening to the Emotion at Work podcast, written, edited, and presented by Phil Wilcox. For more information, why not visit our website, emotionatwork.co.uk. If you enjoyed the podcast, why not join the community at community.emotionatwork.co.uk, where you'll find other resources such as videos, blogs, articles, research, plus all the previous podcasts. It'd be great to hear from you. Thanks for listening.